Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from Luminary Media and the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, The Axe Files with your host, David Axelrod. Anyone who knows anything about American diplomacy knows Bill Burns, a universally respected career diplomat. He served under Republican and Democratic administrations in sensitive roles, including ambassador to Jordan, ambassador to Russia, and finally as deputy secretary of state in the Obama administration. He was the man who laid the groundwork for the Iran nuclear agreement and has been involved in most major foreign policy issues for a generation. He's written a book called The Back Channel about his career in service of this country and making the case for the importance of diplomacy. Ambassador Burns came to the Institute of Politics recently. We sat down to talk about his career, about the need for diplomacy, and the state of the world today. Bill Burns, it's great to be with you. It's great uh, to be with you. I um, I had the privilege of sitting in on some meetings on some yeah, on the sidelines and uh, on some <laughs> weighty issues during my years in the White House, and uh, always always admired you as uh, as sort of the thoroughgoing professional. So it's really a pleasure to be with you and to talk about your life and career in this great new book of yours, The Back Channel. But I, uh, and you, in keeping with my sense of you, you write very little about yourself uh, as your your life in particular, your growing up and mm-hmm. so on, and you devote yourself to the craft of diplomacy and your uh, and and your significant role in the history of the last thirty years, but I want to delve into your sure because I, I had I did not know um, about that your dad was such a prominent uh, person uh, in the military and 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 in diplomacy really uh, did both. But tell me about him. Sure, no, I'm enormously proud of my dad. He was a career army officer, uh, rose to the rank of major general. You were born at. Fort Bragg. Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and spent, you know, I grew up bouncing from one army post to another around the U.S. I went to three different high schools, started in California, then Oklahoma, Pennsylvania. That, well, let's stop there for a second, because yeah. that had to be challenging for a kid. I mean, I moved my family once when my kids were small, and it was it was hard for them to re- to adjust to a new school. And so you were doing yeah. it perpetually. It's true. No, it's a hard adjustment sometimes. But when you're in that world in an army family, sort of like foreign service families, that's just the way it is. And so you think that that's normal. In a way, it had its benefits. You know, I loved playing basketball and baseball in high school, and I was mediocre at both. But, you know, if you had a bad season in one place, you could reinvent <laughs> yourself the next time. Yeah. So No internet then. They couldn't look up your no, stats. No, no, no. Right. But and, there must there, there, you noted somewhere, maybe in the book, but yeah. that it also equipped you for 
you know, going to new places, Did. meeting people you haven't. It makes you adaptable. I think it um, it certainly gives you a good sense of your own country, too. And a lot of times, professional diplomats, the challenge you run into is you absorb yourself in other societies, and you can lose touch with your own. And, you know, I was lucky because I was equipped from that experience growing up um, in the way that I knew my own society pretty well and its strengths and, you know, its diversity and physical beauty and everything else. And so I always try to draw on that as a diplomat overseas. Your dad was very much involved in the the most significant uh, issue of, of, of his era, which was uh, nuclear proliferation and uh, disarmament helped uh, negotiate the uh, the uh, uh, intermediate range nuclear right. treaty, which is now just kind of poignant. I mean, I saw my dad, you know, who's now eighty seven and doing great, thank God. Um, but you know, it was thirty years ago that he helped to negotiate that treaty, which was a big step forward at the time. And of course, now it's about to die on the vine. And so, a lot of that old arms control architecture that was built up in the worst of the Cold War. Um, you know, I, I think is is beginning to fall away, and that's that's a real shame. But no, I'm enormously proud of my dad. And how much was were these kinds of issues? The, he also uh, was the director of the Arms Control and Disarmament mm-hmm. Agency. After that, left the military to do that. How much of that was sort of dinner table talk? How much not, was it? Not a lot. You know, my dad didn't bring the office home, but, you know, you sort of grow up with it, too. So in a way, that was my exposure to public service. I mean, I saw it through the eyes of military service, but, you know, it gave me a sense of, you know, the satisfaction, the fulfillment that you can derive from that, too. And so, did you did you know from an early age, once you decided that you weren't going to be an NBA player. Right. That was a very early age. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did you know that uh, that some some something in the foreign foreign service, I, foreign policy realm I wish was I could, in your future? Yeah. I mean, I wish I could say that I had a sort of neat plan from an early age. I, I, when I was 18, one of my best friends in high school's father became the U.S. ambassador to Egypt. So the summer of 1974. So I spent four months that summer living in Cairo, started to learn Arabic. That was my first exposure really to the world overseas, but also to the world of diplomacy too. So I, you know, I got a preview of it then. That was a pretty, uh, pretty roiled time to be over there. It sure was. You know, I was there after the, the, the war in 73. In the war in 73. And I was there in June of 1974 when President Nixon, on his last legs as president, made his trip to the Middle East, too. So I remember him coming through Cairo in that period, again, as a very impressionable 18-year-old. So, you know, I started to get Sadat, is that right? Yeah, I did that summer as well, which was fascinating. Ambassador Iltz, the U.S. ambassador, then went out to deliver a message um, yeah, to Sadat, and I went along, along with Iles' family. Um, and it was fascinating. It was a very informal lunch with Sadat at his vacation home on the Mediterranean. So, you know, you get exposed, I think, to the world of diplomacy and international affairs at a very early age. So in that sense, I was really fortunate. We, uh, I, I want to talk about the Middle East, and we'll get to it, but mm. um, just mentioning Sadat makes you realize how things happen that you can't plan for that can change the course oh. of history. He, of course, was assassinated. Uh, Rabin 
in uh, Israel in the 90s in the midst of uh, a big push toward which you were yes. uh, uh, around and aware of and involved yes. in uh, for uh, a peaceful solution to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Um, and you, you, you just think about these people who fired the shots you know, I guess, you know, going back to the Archduke Ferdinand and right. through history, but and just change the course of history, because actually it matters who is in who are in these jobs. It does. No, leadership matters enormously, whether it's in a really complicated part of the world like the Middle East or any place else. And, you know, people like Sadat and Yitzhak Rabin, who are prepared to take risks and have a larger vision of the interests of their countries and the value of peace. Um, you know, when they get removed from the scene in that kind of a brutal way, um, it leaves a void. And then, you know, then you see the way in which people stumble in foreign policy. You uh, you got a Marshall Scholarship. You, you, you studied at Oxford. And then you joined the Foreign Service. Mm -hmm. And the, your first posting was in the Middle East, right. in, in Jordan, had a kind of inauspicious I did, beginning. Yeah. Yeah, I used to tell this story to new Foreign Service officers <laughs> to remind them that you don't have to have a rocket-propelled start in any profession. I was persuaded, actually thought this was a great idea, a great adventure, to drive a truck filled with communications equipment from Amman, capital of Jordan, to Baghdad in Iraq, middle of the Iran-Iraq War in the 1980s, and thought this would be a great adventure um, until I got to the Iraqi border. And an Iraqi security officer who bore a striking resemblance to Saddam Hussein ended up confiscating the truck and all of its contents. I was I had to drive under police escort the rest of the way to Baghdad through, you know, Anbar province and a lot of places that later became, became well known, known to, to Americans, Americans yeah. Fallujah and Lots of others. Um, so, you know, I then spent the next three and a half decades as a foreign service officer worried that my pay was going to get docked <laughs> for the cost of the Never trip. recovered the stuff, huh? Never recovered the stuff. Um, what, did, what did they say to you when you, uh, when, you, when you turned up? Oh, when I turned up in Baghdad. I think they were relieved in a sense, but, you know, it didn't exactly um, create much expectation about my future as a <laughs> diplomat, I don't think. But you did – but your future did um, – yeah. Uh, take off and you went back to the states after a couple of years work and you worked at the state department and you worked at the nsc um talk about the difference between being you you, you were later an ambassador twice and mm -hmm. you were a political officer and so on mm. being out in the world and being at the state department or at the nsc and the difference between sort of the theory and and uh, being out in the field and yeah i mean i think increasingly especially for my generation of american diplomats it became incredibly important to have an understanding of how the policy process works in washington which you can only get from working in the, in washington as well as how to navigate you know foreign landscapes overseas traditionally you know that had been the focus of american diplomats um you know lots of people i admired in the generations before mine spent almost their entire career serving overseas um and so I I think in this day and age, and certainly in my generation, you got to be able to do both if you're going to be an effective diplomat. In other words, if you're sitting in the White House Situation Room, as you well know, you know, it helps if you can bring a granular sense of foreign leaders and how you navigate those complicated places. 
But by the same token, when you're working overseas, you, it's hard to be effective if you don't understand how to, you know, how to help shape the policy process in Washington too. Yeah. So I think that's the pattern that you're likely to see more into the future. You uh, you were at the NSC in the late '80s, kind of, and you were a, a staff assistant in the Near Eastern Affairs mm-hmm. Bureau. Kind of a, a it was a, a tumultuous time. Uh, to be there. It was. I mean, and it was a good education for me because I worked at the National Security Council staff. I ended up at a pretty young age running the Middle East office there. But right after I arrived, the Iran-Contra scandal broke, um, which almost brought down a presidency in Ronald Reagan. Um, So I saw in those first few months how an NSC staff system should not work. Um, but then, you know, Colin Powell ended up becoming the national security advisor. I worked for him. I saw a much more disciplined National Security Council staff. He was the one who promoted you. He did. Yeah, Yeah, he did. And I remember going over and trying to persuade him that he should find someone more senior um, to be the head of the Middle East office there. And he basically said, I wouldn't have asked you if I didn't think you should do it. And I was smart enough at least to understand that that was my cue to walk out of the office and do the best I could. Um, But it was a a good education um, in how Washington works. The um, you were uh, you were in the uh, the policy on the policy planning staff. Mm-hmm. You were deputy director, acting director uh, at the State Department uh, during the uh, Bush administration, mm-hmm. the first Bush administration. Uh, and you write very uh, glowingly about that period. And it wasn't an incredibly invent- eventful period. The fall of the Berlin Wall and the so and the the Soviet Union, um, and it seemed like a whole new era uh, there. And it was a it was a again a tumultuous time for the president for the. But you speak very glowingly about him about uh, about Jim Baker, mm-hmm. the Secretary mm-hmm. of State. Uh, talk to me about that period of time. Sure. Well, it really was, you know, this is 1989 to beginning in 1993. It was one of those plastic moments in international history that comes along maybe a couple times a century. We saw it in 1945 and the years after that, the end of the Second World War, the beginning of the Cold War. And I think we saw it again in 18, 1989, the end, the end of the Cold War. But both of those periods intersected with a group of American statesmen, in the case of 1989, led by President George H.W. Bush and James Baker as the Secretary of State, Brent Scowcroft, the National Security Advisor, who were truly impressive in the way in which um, they understood how best to apply American power uh, and diplomacy. And they understood the landscape and its transformations and the opportunities as well as the challenges that it created. Baker in particular was a really impressive person to work for. And I'm not trying to exaggerate my role. I was a mid-level officer at that time. But I used to travel with him all the time on his trips. And, you know, he had a sense of strategic purpose He understood that this moment of singular American dominance with the end of the Cold War wasn't a permanent condition. He had to use that leverage to try to shape an order that would outlast, you know, uh, American dominance. He also had a sense of strategic empathy, as did President Bush 41. They understood the predicament of Mikhail Gorbachev and what the Soviet Union was going through as it collapsed. You didn't see them, you know, spiking the football on top of the Berlin Wall. You didn't see them swaggering at a moment when, by any rational measure, you know, American statesmen could have swaggered. And I always learned a lot of lessons from that. There was a sense of humility that 
and it wasn't shy about the exercise of power, but a sense of humility about the importance of balancing ends and means. And at some point, taking some really important calculated risks, like they did in the process of helping to reunify Germany and keeping it in NATO, um, but also then demonstrating restraint. In some ways, it would have been the easiest thing in the world to continue to pursue Iraqi forces. Yeah, well, I wanted to ask you about that, because yeah. that's been that's been written about and talked about quite a bit, that decision not right. to go and topple Saddam, which they, they could have done. They could have, and it was it was a reminder to me, a lesson to me, and the value of restraint at certain times, because they understood, I think, President Bush and Baker did, that if they had done that, it would have wrecked the coalition that they had put together so painstakingly um, you know, in Desert Storm in the effort to push Saddam out of Kuwait, because that was the premise, to push him out of Kuwait. It wasn't to topple the regime. They also, I think, had a healthy respect for all the challenges of the day after, you know, if you did topple Saddam Hussein. And then I think for Baker also, he already had in mind the value of using that moment and really unparalleled American leverage to try to put together the Madrid Peace Conference to bring Arab Israelis and Palestinians together in the same room around the same negotiating agenda, which he was later successful in doing. But I think so for all those reasons, I think it was exactly the right decision. It was later criticized. Um, but I think for me, it'll always be a lesson in you know how you need to be restrained and disciplined, even at points when your power could tempt you to do all sorts of stuff. So flash forward uh, to your experience during the the, the second Bush administration. Mm -hmm. You were working in the uh, State Department, now with Colin Powell as Secretary of State. Um, and you and, and, and State generally, including the Secretary of State, had concerns about the... Um, about the decision uh, to go to war in Iraq. Um, how much did the experience that you had during that first Gulf War and watching how that was handled, how much did that impact on your judgments and your concerns that you expressed internally yeah. uh, about this about the, the second Gulf War? Well, I mean, it shaped it considerably in the sense that, you know, it, it, it gave all of us, I think, a healthy um, regard for the complexities of the day after in Iraq. I mean, the same reason that, you know, that Bush and Baker decided not to move ahead in the spring of 1991. I think it also underscored the value of having a lot of company on the takeoff in any operation like this. I mean, the Desert Storm. In coalition. other words, allies. Right, allies, partners, even if you don't need them militarily, because the truth is the U.S. military was strong enough in the spring of 1991 to have accomplished that task without a lot of help. But politically and diplomatically, it made a huge difference to have that you know, huge group of coalition partners. So that was another lesson because, you know, you need company on the takeoff um, if you're going to be successful on the landing, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, so that was a part of it, too. And then for my generation of foreign service officers with experience in the Middle East, there was also the shadow of Lebanon in the 1980s, where we, the United States, had sort of stumbled into the middle of a very bloody sectarian war um, without any real sense of what the sort of vital interest for the United States was that what was at stake. And so that, I think, informed our concerns, too. Talk to me about Colin Powell, uh, because obviously you work closely with yeah. him uh, on, on, in several 
assignments. Um, he, y- you write in that he shared in in your concerns, and he's spoken very publicly about. Don't get into a mission unless you right. understand what happens after and what the end of it will uh, will look like. He wanted to go back to the UN. Is that right? He did. Yeah. Um, you know, for the sake as much as anything of legitimacy, you know, to get a resolution that would authorize the U.S. use of force. And, you know, in the in that administration, George W. Bush administration, the first term, um, there were some starkly different views. And I remember one time going to a meeting in the Situation Room that neither Powell nor his deputy, Rich Armitage, could attend. Um, I think it was in September of 2002. And I was dutifully making the argument for a Security Council resolution on grounds that it would, you know, strengthen our legitimacy if we had to use force. And I remember Vice President Cheney sitting across the table from me and listening very politely to what I had to say but then saying in his usual laconic way, the only legitimacy we need comes on the back of an M1A1 tank. And that was the contrary view in that administration. It was not so much the neocon view, that was the paleoconservative view that after 9-11, you know, um, toppling the Taliban in Afghanistan was necessary but not sufficient. You needed to send a stronger signal to people in a part of the world that in their view only understood one language, which was force, and Saddam became the tempting next target for a lot of people. How uh, you you write in the book about the that one of your concerns is that we've lost the balance between um, sort of military force and diplomacy. That and really. Um, beyond that, I mean, and, and as part of that, that the State Department has been reduced in influence, and the Pentagon has 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 been enhanced in influence in in these councils and in these discussions. Is was that the point? Was that sort of the line of demarcation where this? really accelerated. I mean, I think the drift began even before that. You know, after the end of the Cold War, it was easy for all of us as Americans to get a little bit complacent because our weight in the world was such that, you know, it seems sometimes that diplomacy did matter so much. But 9-11 was such a deep shock to our system um, that it, it kind of further emphasized you know, military and intelligence tools. And diplomacy tended sometimes to be treated as a kind of under-resourced afterthought. And so I think at this moment, another plastic moment on the international landscape, as I think President Obama recognized very well, you've got to look at the whole range of tools, you know, in promoting American interests overseas. And at a time when we're no longer the only big kid on the geopolitical block, the rise of China, the resurgence of Russia, Um, diplomacy is actually more important than ever. You're never going to succeed in diplomacy unless it's harnessed, you know, to military leverage and economic leverage. But you need to strike a balance so that it becomes your tool of first resort. Because, you know, history shows us that at least attempting to use diplomacy in a serious way, um, you know, spares you enormous expense in American blood and treasure, which comes with the use of force, especially if you use it prematurely or you overuse it. One of the battles that you guys lost in that period of time was who and how the um, uh, post-invasion period would be handled uh, in in terms of reforming Iraqi uh, society and so on. I know you wrote about 
uh, your concerns about that turned out that that proved out about the impact of sectarian warfare in the absence of a strong yeah. man controlling uh, there. But but you got you you essentially had to sit by, and the Pentagon took over that post uh, invasion period. Um, that must have been a painful thing to watch. Yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, even before the war in the summer of 2002, two colleagues of mine in the Middle East Bureau and the State Department had had the most depressing brainstorming session of our careers where we tried to lay out all the things we thought could go wrong after Saddam was toppled. Because in a sense, we always thought, and here I don't mean to minimize the military challenge, but that the easy part was toppling Saddam. The hard part was always going to be on the day after. And so we called this memorandum, which we sent to Secretary Powell, who really didn't need to be convinced of this, um, the perfect storm. And, you know, you read it in hindsight, it's declassified now. Um, we got it about half right. We got some things right, some things wrong. But it was an honest effort to lay out our concerns. And I think in any disciplined civilian service, just like the U.S. military, you have an obligation to be honest about your concerns. I, I wish I had been more effective in laying out those concerns. Um, but, you know, that's that's what you're obligated to do in a disciplined service. You uh, you went and you learned Russian. Yep. And you spent uh, a couple of years as the political counselor in the uh, embassy in Moscow. And you uh, one of the people you encountered along the way was a deputy mayor in St. Petersburg uh, named Vladimir Putin. Uh, do you remember your first encounters with him? Vaguely. I mean, I was the the, politi- the senior political officer at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow in the early 90s when Vladimir Putin was then a kind of gray, unknown uh, deputy mayor of, of St. Petersburg. And I remember being in one meeting with him when I was visiting St. Petersburg. But I'm sure you know, I made as much impression on him as he did on me. I didn't ever expect I'd come back as the U.S. ambassador. I'm sure he didn't expect he was going to be the president of Russia. But I've, but I have always thought that if you want to understand the smoldering aggressiveness of Vladimir Putin's Russia, it helps to understand the disorder, the chaos, the mix of hope and humiliation that was Boris Yeltsin's Russia, that was the Russia I knew first in the early 1990s. Yeah, and I want to ask you about our a role in that mm-hmm. because um, we talked about the need for humility. Um, did America you know, did America display that sufficiently? Was there sufficient, uh, as you suggest, empathy uh, for what was going on? In, I think in Russia at the time. I mean, I think there was a fair amount of empathy. I think in the Clinton administration, a lot, an enormous amount of effort was put put in to helping manage Russian sensibilities. You know, there was a, a debate that broke out late in the 1990s about who lost Russia. Um, at a time when it was clear that Russia was beginning to turn in a more authoritarian direction. I always thought that was the wrong question. I mean, Russia was never ours to lose. Russians had to reshape their own society, and they had kind of lost trust in themselves. I'm not a fatalist. I don't think we were fated to have the kind of ugly adversarial relationship we have today. But there was a certain amount of competition that was always going to be built into it. So sure, could we have managed different moments better? What about what about uh, how we approach NATO and, uh, and the push to admit uh, 
former Soviet states into NATO? Well, I think in the first phases of it, you know, in the mid-1990s, late 1990s, when we first admitted Poland and some of the Central and East European states, you know, when I was sitting in Moscow as, as the political chief, you know, I tried to highlight the reality that we shouldn't underestimate the Russian reaction to that, that at some point they would be back economically and politically at least, and there'd be this sense that they were taken advantage of. But to be honest, I never thought that either that wave or the later wave which brought the Baltic states into NATO were lethal to the U.S.-Russian relationship. You know, Poles had their own sense of historical insecurity caught between the ambitions of Germany and Russia. So you can understand the need to help anchor Poland in a sense of mm -hmm. security and possibility. Where I do think we made a mistake was you fast forward a decade later in the spring of 2008 when we pushed towards the end of the George W. Bush administration to open the door to formal membership for Ukraine and Georgia in NATO. And that that you know, almost inevitably engendered a reaction, not just from Putin, but for a whole range of people across the Russian political elite. I think each of us, Americans and Russians, had our illusions, you know, over the last quarter century since the end of the Cold War. Ours was that, you know, we could eventually maneuver over or around any Russian leadership, because in the early 90s, we could. But there came a point where Russia was able to push back and Putin took a particular relish um, in doing that. Russians had their own illusions. I think Putin's had the illusion that an authoritarian system, which is essentially a one-dimensional economy, which has demographic problems, you know, is a solid basis for competition in the 21st century. I don't, I think that's an illusion too. Um, but again, you know, you, when, when Putin came to power, and especially as he was surfing on $130 a barrel oil and the Russian economy bounced back, he was determined to push back. He thought we had taken advantage of Russia's moment of historical weakness. So when he saw dysfunction and polarization in our system, he was going to try to take advantage. I uh, had uh, the honor of going with the president to Russia in uh, 2009. I remember. And... Um, were you with him when he met with Putin? I was, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I remember. Because he came back. I mean, I was the beneficiary because he was supposed to meet with Gorbachev next. Right. And they said, you know, go in there and talk to Gorbachev because Putin's running along. When I asked the president what happened, he said, well, the first hour or so was just a, a well, catalog of the indignities that he well, felt the U.S. had heaped on. Uh, it's true. Well, I had had the bright idea of riding out in the limousine with the president to suggest that maybe the way to break the ice would be to ask Putin, you know, what he thought <laughs> had gone right and gone wrong. 55 minutes later, after, uh, you know, a pure monologue by Putin and a listing of grievances, you know, I was wondering whether I had a future in the State Department or in the <laughs> Obama administration at that point. But it was actually, I think, a very a shrewd thing for the president to do. It gave Putin a chance to get some things off his chest. Um, the president, you know, listened carefully and then pushed back on a number of issues. But you know, I mean, that at least opened up the possibility of a more serious dialogue. The challenge, of course, became, you know, Putin was prime minister, he was no longer president of Russia in that period. So one of the structural problems we faced and the president faced was how do you sustain a connection with Vladimir Putin, who, even though he wasn't president sitting in an office in the Kremlin, was clearly the central decision maker in Russia. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, he did have a good relationship with Medvedev. Med mm -hmm. Med yes. Med Med 
it's been so long I can't even maybe uh, I'd have yeah yes yeah. no he did I yeah agree. and um, he um, uh, and there was some progress made during that sure uh, period but the 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 door kind of slammed shut when Putin returned to the presidency it did I mean I think you know what was termed the reset in policy in two thousand nine two thousand ten to this day I think was it a was. smart yeah. thing for yeah. the United yeah. States to do you know our relationship with Russia had cratered we thought it had hit an all-time low. We've discovered since then how much lower it can go after the war between Russia and Georgia in August of 2008. It made sense from our in our cold-blooded self-interest as well as Russia's to explore areas where we could cooperate. So we eventually did on Afghanistan, on the Iranian nuclear issue. New START treaty. The New START treaty, which was a really important step forward, I think. Um, but we didn't have a lot of economic ballast in the relationship. And you also had a Vladimir Putin behind the scenes, still the central decision maker, who became increasingly concerned, I think, especially after the revolution in Libya and Gaddafi's overthrow, you know, in which Russia had actually allowed a Security Council resolution to be passed that legitimized the use of force to help topple Gaddafi, that, to, that eventually helped topple Gaddafi. Um, I think Putin became increasingly convinced that um, you know the United States was taking advantage of Russia and he needed to push back. Med- Medved- <laughs> God damn. Medvedev, yeah, yeah. Um, he, uh, I always felt that he and Obama uh, related w- mm-hmm. well to each other as they were not born, they didn't really live through the brunt of the Cold War. They were both lawyers. They were right. kind of almost technocrats in a way, and they were able to speak on that uh, level. Uh, that, that, that wasn't the same uh, with Putin. No, it wasn't. And, you know, in a way, Putin and Medvedev, even though they're not all that far apart in age, came from different generations. You know, Putin was raised professionally in the KGB. Um, You know, his the most searing experience for him was the collapse of the Soviet Union and what was in effect defeat in the Cold War. Medvedev's whole professional life largely came after the end of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. Right. Um, Talk about Putin and where we are today um, yeah. because you know you you speak of the he had a sense that America has been meddling in his uh, affairs and um, and there's no doubt that part of uh, what uh, uh, was done during the Obama administration was to try and support uh, civil society mm-hmm. movements mm-hmm. there Mike McFall who became right. a target of, of Putin our ambassador there was very much uh, involved with that. He felt that Hillary Clinton had uh, meddled in their uh, election by calling for fair and free uh, elections there. Uh, I mean, do you think in his mind that he this was just retaliation, what he's doing here? You know, it was both, I think, a matter of conviction and convenience for Putin to point at connect dots that really weren't meant to be connected in the sense of U.S. activities that he would see as efforts to undermine him. He drew a straight line from the weakness of the 1990s to the color revolutions in Georgia and then Ukraine, and saw all this as an effort to undermine him and keep Russia down. Not trying to justify that, that's just his conviction. It was also convenient for him because he could use an enemy at the gate to justify very repressive practices 
practices at home. And Putin, in my experience, was always you know, a very combustible combination of grievance and insecurity and ambition, all wrapped up together. I remember first meeting I had with him as the newly arrived a U.S. ambassador, summer of 2005. So I'm meeting with him at the Kremlin, which, as you well know, is uh, built on a scale meant to intimidate um, visitors, especially new American ambassadors. So you walk through these huge halls down long corridors. You come to the end of one huge hall. There are these two-story bronze doors. And you're kept waiting there for a minute just to let all this sink in. And then the doors crack open. Out comes Vladimir Putin, who's, you know, not as you know, particularly impressive. He's 5'6", but he carries himself with great self-assurance. And so he comes walking toward me, and before I got a word out of my mouth, said, you know, you Americans need to listen more. You can't have everything your own way anymore. We can have effective relations, but not just on your terms. That was vintage Vladimir Putin. It's not subtle. Mm -hmm. It's kind of defiantly charmless. Um, But he was delivering a message then. And so... You know, based on his conviction that we were determined to keep Russia down, you know, when he saw an opportunity to take advantage of polarization and dysfunction in the U.S. political system, 2016, he seized it and in some ways succeeded beyond his wildest imagination. Yeah, there's there's no doubt. So what about his relationship with Trump? First of all, um, what do you make of their relationship? And what did you think when you saw Trump, for example, uh, standing next to him in Helsinki, in Helsinki and uh, saying he said they didn't do it, and I right. take his word for it. Oh, I think efforts with Putin, in my experience, efforts like that, especially from an American president, to ingratiate yourself um, are seen as a sign of weakness and manipulability. So in, I think if you had been able to see the cartoon balloon coming out of Putin's head on that stage in Helsinki, it would have said, what an easy mark. I struck the mother load. Right, because from his point of view, um, I don't know that he ever had any expectations that he was going to be able to work with the Trump administration to roll back sanctions and everything else. He tried, but I don't know that he was convinced that would happen. But next best thing for him was a dysfunctional United States, an erratic leadership that's you know consumed by its own internal political challenges and is not nearly as formidable a leadership force on the international landscape. From Putin's point of view, that creates more space for Russia. So I think he's seen it as an opportunity. Yeah. What, uh, in terms of Trump's own um, entanglements or... or uh, relationship with Russia. I mean, much has been made of the, um, in search of explanations, uh, a theory for why he's so deferential uh, to uh, uh, to Trump. Just the other day, um, when the, this uh, uh, attempted coup or bubbled up in uh, Venezuela, Trump uh, took off after the Cubans, uh, while the Secretary of State blamed the Russians. Yeah. Uh, and yet the president would not. What do you think is going on there? You know, it's a really good question, and I I don't um, know is the honest answer. I think several things. First, the president clearly has a bad case of autocrat envy, and in that sense sees Putin as the kind of leader that in a weird way he admires. Um, I think, second, the president seems deeply insecure um, that um, about the legitimacy of his selection and that, you know, the more people speculate about a Russian role, the more questions that casts 
on the legitimacy of that election. Um, so there's that sense of insecurity. Third, you know, I've always thought, you know, having dealt with Russia for many years, that you do need to follow the money. And there's the whole issue of, you know, investments that may have come from Russia or oligarchs in the former Soviet Union and Trump properties. I have no idea what the truth of that is. Well, a lot of people trying to figure it out right right now. But I suspect, you know, I suspect that's what's animating a lot of what the Southern District of New York is doing, the New York Attorney General and others. And, you know, I I suspect that's another of the sources of angst. How's the world viewing all of this? You travel broadly as at a, a yeah. Carnegie. What, what? I, I mean, I think the problem now is that, um, you know, as, as we become so erratic, um, adversaries are not going to sit on their hands and rivals. They're going to take advantage of that moment as Putin is trying to do, as Xi Jinping and China is trying to do in a different way. Um, allies start to lose faith and they hedge when, you know, our uh, behavior becomes less predictable for them when we cast, the president casts so many doubts about the utility of alliances, the kind of things that really set us apart from lonelier powers like China and Russia. And then I think institutions start to teeter, international institutions that, you know, we work so hard to build and defend over more than 70 years since the end of the Second World War. We didn't always get it right. And of course, those institutions and those alliances need to be adapted. President Trump's rights to push NATO partners to spend more on defense. He's not the first president who's tried to do that, right. but he's right. He's right to push the Chinese on predatory trade and investment practices. But where I think he's wrong is by casting doubt on what should matter most to Americans right now, which are alliances, our capacity to mobilize coalitions of, of countries as well. Um, and you know, that's our real source of strength on the landscape as far out into the 21st century as I can see. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the the real, I mean, he sees these institutions and you hear the Bannonites in, in his camp and so on. Uh, they see these institutions as institutions that are infringing on our national sovereignty. Right. That, you know, and Trump's basic rhetoric on this is that America gives, gets taken advantage yes. of and, and so on. But those institutions are uh, ultimately there to help pr- uh, create a secure right. world, provide coordination on problems that can only be dealt with globally. Um, it's, no, I think that's true. And I think, first, I think President Trump tapped um, you know, a pretty rich vein in American society, the sense that we're being taken for suckers, that allies aren't you know, doing their fair share and adversaries are taking advantage. Um, so, so, you know, that, you know, that's part of his own political genius, I think, in a way. But the question is, you know, what do you do about that? And I think presidents, you know, I worked for five presidents and 10 secretaries of state administrations of both parties. What animated American foreign policy at its best was a sense of enlightened self-interest, a sense that our narrow self-interest, which obviously always needs to come first in a sense, but that we can strengthen our hand in the world if we're trying to mobilize as many other countries as share a common sense of purpose as we can. And, and I think President Trump tends to see that that ideal of enlightened self-interest is something for suckers. You know, it's, it's much more focused on the self part than the enlightened. And I think that actually erodes um, our real strengths in the world today rather than takes advantage of them as well. 
One of the things you write about um, that you know deeply concerns me is the the rate of change in the world driven by technology, driven driven by globalization, and the in inability, partly because of divisions of not just our country but other countries, to react. And so you have this 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 mobilization of uh, the disrupted uh, in this great. Uh, revolution. You, you point out that this is the this is the industrial revolution on steroids, and you see these nationalist movements and these nativist movements growing not just here, but all over Europe and you around do. the world. Well, you've written and spoken about this as uh, eloquently as anyone. But I mean, you know, I was in the UK two weeks ago, and we're clearly having a nervous breakdown on both sides of the Atlantic right now, in some ways. But you can see some of the same sources of anxiety creating all of those tensions in societies it's it's uncertainty about the revolu- what the revolution in technology is going to mean whether robotics and automation are going to displace workers on a huge scale it's concern about inequalities which are real in our society just as they are in you know parts of Europe and and fueled by uh, the, this technological boom. And, right. I mean if you're well positioned the 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 opportunities are enormous. No. If you're not there's nothing but anxiety. Right, and so that you can understand entirely why people feel that deep sense of not just anxiety, but resentment of the people who benefit from those changes. And that's, you know, ultimately that's the challenge of leadership, especially in democratic systems, is to be honest with people about the changes that are inevitable, um, that you can't turn the clock back in different parts of the manufacturing sector in the United States, but you can adapt to it. You can think ahead, you can focus on education and other areas where you can help cushion the effects of some of those changes and then look ahead um, to a place where, you know, the United States can be as successful and competitive as anyone else can, if not more so. The, um, yeah, there are, two, there are two ways to go here. One is to surf the resentment, uh, which the president has done and pretty effectively uh, politically and directed anger at immigrants right. and uh, uh and, and other forces. Um, the the other is to try and address the anxiety in, in a real and substantive way. I think that's right. And you and you see lots of populist, you know, populist imitators and nationalist leaders in Europe who are doing exactly the same thing. They play on people's fears, which are real, um, but they don't offer plan B. They don't offer an alternative vision of, okay, these challenges are real. Um, but here are the ways in which we need to understand them, and here are the ways in which we need to try to get ahead of them. In service of his uh, project, the president has withdrawn the country from a, a number of global agreements uh, on, on climate change, the TTP, as it relates to trade with Asia, mm-hmm. major strategic issue. Um, and the one that you worked so, uh, so, so long and hard on, which was the Iran nuclear mm-hmm. agreement, um, what, what's the impact of that withdrawal? Um, well, I think it was an historic mistake, and I think you can measure the impact in a couple of ways. One is sort of the collateral damage of it. I think it does further erode American credibility. Now, that's an overused term in Washington, as you know. It's often used by people like me, card-carrying members of the Washington establishment, to push presidents in directions, which maybe they should I didn't check your go. ID, but I will. 
accept your admission. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I didn't mean that in a complimentary way. (laughs) Um, So there's that erosion of credibility against a pattern of retreat from all the agreements you mentioned. Second, I think we're widening the fissures between us and our closest European allies who are trying to stick with the nuclear agreement, in a sense, doing Vladimir Putin's work for him. Third, we're eroding um, the utility of sanctions over time. Yeah, the foreign minister of Germany stand up a year ago and say, all of us need to reduce our vulnerability to the U.S. financial system. So this won't happen overnight, but we'll wake up five or six years from now and find that sanctions, which you know have been always used well, but when we've used them strategically, have been a pretty potent instrument, aren't as potent anymore. And then there's another set of dangers of collisions, I think, you know, whether it's between us and the Iranians in the Middle East or between some of our closest partners and the Iranians. And then the real danger of escalation, too. And, you know, I worry that the main purpose of the administration strategy right now is not really to produce a better nuclear deal, but rather to produce either the capitulation of this Iranian regime or its implosion. And I think those aims are not tethered to history, at least as I've understood it with the Iranians. We can do a lot of economic damage to Iran. I don't underestimate that for a moment. But I think it, it tends in some ways to play to the strengths of the hardest of the hardliners in that regime. And, you know, I just wouldn't underestimate the dangers of an escalation and of collisions in a part of the world where they rarely end well. We, uh, I'm sure that he's also being encouraged by some of our allies in the region, mm-hmm. Sunni allies in the region, um, the, the Saudis mm-hmm. uh, in particular. Um, talk about those relationships, because you, you write yeah. about, and, and I, I thought it was really important, um, how one balances values. Mm-hmm. America's stood for human rights in the world. Uh, that's been a fundamental value. Uh, and self-interest. Um, so, for example, the situation we faced with the Saudis yes. and the slaying of uh, Jamal Khashoggi. Um, how how should the administration have dealt with that, given all the equities? Well, I'd start on a note of humility, because, you know, over my three and a half decades as a diplomat, I certainly didn't always get it right in striking the balance between values that matter, not just to Americans, but to lots of people sure. around the world and self-interest. You know, when you have a big stake in counterterrorism cooperation, how does that balance against genuine concern about human rights violations? Having said that, I think in a relationship like the U.S.-Saudi relationship, which matters to both of us, um, I think it's really important not to check your values at the door. I think, you know, people will argue that you have to be careful about pushing values too hard because you're going to disrupt a relationship or make it more brittle. Actually, I think, you know, not raising those kind of concerns is is actually what's going to make those, you know, societies and leaderships more brittle over time. So in the case of Saudi Arabia, it seems to me the United States ought to be you know, quite strong in our support for legitimate efforts at social and economic modernization, what the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has laid out, hard as it is to achieve. We ought to be strong in our support of Saudi Arabia against legitimate external threats, whether it's Iran or anybody else. But we should be equally direct and equally blunt in our concerns about overreach, whether it's overreach domestically, you know, the kind of repressive tendencies that caused this regime to murder Jamal Khashoggi in a Saudi diplomatic establishment in Turkey, um, and to push back against external overreach, like in Yemen today, which Mm -hmm. is 
a humanitarian catastrophe, but also, I think, a strategic catastrophe for the Saudis. As friends, we ought to be honest about our concerns there um, and not not be indulgent. You uh, you wrote about um, Syria as a, a major failure uh, of American uh, policy. You were you were there for part of that story. Um, what went wrong? You, you were yeah. you were you were blunt about. The decision that President Obama made, first drawing the red line and then... Yeah, I mean, at first I had enormous um, empathy um, and sympathy for the president's concern about not getting dragged into another major military intervention in the Middle East. The shadow of... The same principle that you, yeah. that you yourself raised... Initially in Iraq. about Iraq. Yeah, and the truth is the shadow of Iraq 2003 and that strategic disaster hung over, I think, all of our reactions to the Arab Spring and the pace with which you know, those changes came down the pike. I think in Syria, what all of us got wrong, me included, um, was an imbalance of ends and means. You know, The classic challenge you face in statecraft where we set maximalist ends you know, Assad must go. There's a red line that if the Syrian regime uses chemical weapons against its own people, we'll react. Um, and yet our means, I think, turned out to be too minimalist in the, in the sense they were pretty grudging and incremental. So you think once once those markers were laid that there was some responsibility to follow up on them? Well, or, or I think an alternative would have been not to set such maximalist right. goals. Um, and then, ironically, I think actually use a little bit more assertive means early on in the Civil War, when I think that might have given us more leverage, not to achieve a military solution, that wasn't, I think, going to happen, but more leverage for American diplomacy in that period. At a moment early in the so Civil War. So arming the rebels. And- yeah, earlier on. I think if you look at everything we did from 2011 through 2015, it's actually pretty impressive. But we stretched it out over a long period of time. Whereas you look at Putin's intervention at September of 2015, which I'm the last person to try to justify. But it wasn't a huge military intervention, three dozen attack aircraft, two or 3,000 Russian boots on the ground. But he did it in a very telescoped way, Mm -hmm. and so he maximized the political and diplomatic bang. Having said all that, I'm not one of those people who think that if we had done X, Y, or Z in 2011 or 2012, I could sit here with a straight face and say the outcome would have been a lot different. The reality was that not only was Assad was not going to negotiate himself out of existence. The Russians and Iranians were always going to double down, no matter what we did. And I and the president was right. You know, when many of us would make arguments about we should do this or that, to ask, okay, so play this out for me. Mm-hmm. You know, look at the second and third order consequences. So, so I think it's hard to look at Syria in those years as anything other than, you know, a policy failure for the United States. Um, but Again, it was an enormously difficult issue. You described you worked with Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. when she was Secretary of State. You were her deputy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you describe her as, as I saw her, well-prepared, incisive, mm-hmm. um, but cautious. Um, was that caution ultimately... I know I'm asking you to step out of your lane yeah, here, yeah. And, and you being a diplomat probably will step back in. <laughs> but was that caution uh, ultimately politically fatal for her in that 
campaign in 2016? I don't know. I mean, you're right. It's not my lane. I mean, I think in diplomacy, a lot of times, you know, Secretary Clinton always asked the right questions. I think she and, and President Obama were a pretty formidable team, as John Kerry was later on. So I, I, I don't know. 2016 was such a complicated <laughs> election, as you know far better than I do. Um, you you talk about you talked about the Madrid conference. Mm-hmm. Where do you think the prospects are now for any kind of resolution of a, of a conflict between uh, Israel and the Palestinians, given the reelection of of Netanyahu right. and his aggressive moves relative to annexing more. I'm I'm generally an optimist, although you might not know that from everything we've been discussing. But, you know, the Middle East is a place where pessimists always feel right at home. And so on Arab-Israeli issues, it's hard for me to be anything other than pessimistic right now. And I, I fear that when the so-called deal of the century, you know, is announced which, and described. Jared Kushner. Right, yeah. and President Trump, you know, which apparently is going to come out sometime early this summer, that it could end up putting the last nail in the coffin of a two-state solution for Israelis and Palestinians, because I think it's based, from what little I know of it, based on some false assumptions that, you know, the United States can help make progress on that issue Um, not really dealing with the Palestinians, which we haven't been doing directly for more than a year, that somehow you can substitute dealing with some of our Arab state partners for dealing with the Palestinians. And it's, it's a good thing that there are a number of Arab states today who share with Israel a concern about Iran and it's bringing them closer together. But it's not a substitute for Palestinians and Israelis negotiating. It's another false assumption to think that you can substitute economic incentives for people's sense of political dignity. You know, if that were the case, this problem would have been solved a long time ago. That's very Trumpian right there. It is, but it may work in New York real estate. I don't think it's going to work with Palestinians and Israelis. And third, I think, you know, there's the false assumption that time is on our side. And I think if you just look at demographic realities, sometime in the next decade, Arabs are going to be in a majority in the land that Israel controls from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean. So the question is, how do you sustain a Jewish democratic state in those kind of circumstances? And I think there's also collateral damage out there too, like Jordan, which is a small country, but an important partner of the United States for many years. If the two-state solution really does collapse, you know, that's going to raise a lot of questions about Jordan's identity and its stability, too. And that's something we should pay more attention to. Your book, The Back Channel, A Memoir of American Diplomacy and the Case for Its Renewal. I want to talk about the last phrase, the case for its renewal. Mm-hmm. State Department has been badly damaged. Um, you, you've seen a lot of uh, very experienced diplomats leave and fewer younger people right. applying for the Foreign Service. As you point out, America suffered uh, globally. And here in the United States, uh, there isn't a great constituency no. for diplomacy, for investments in the State Department. I once told uh, John Kerry that he, he should find some group to to fund some research and and really develop a campaign to try. And, and I know others, Kissinger and others, yes. have tried yes. uh, to do that. But what... It, Go, you can either put your optimist hat on yeah. or your 
a well, pessimist hat on, but but what is the what? How how do we achieve renewal, and yeah. what are the prospects of doing that? Well, I mean, I think here I will put my optimist hat on, although I understand how difficult this is going to be to do. And I'd say three things. First, you you do need a political leadership that understands on this international landscape in this era the significance of diplomacy alongside all of our other tools. Um, second, I think, you know, the State Department itself needs to be a little bit self-critical and reform. You know, in as you know from your own experience, individual American diplomats can be incredibly innovative and courageous and entrepreneurial. As an institution, the State Department is rarely accused of being too agile or too full of initiative. <laughs> yes, that's true. So there's lots of things that can be done to delayer the State Department. It's kind of a top-heavy institution right now, too. And then you've got to build modern skills on top of that. We talked about the revolution in technology. You need to attract people who are conversant in you know, artificial intelligence, synthetic biology, because it's the role of the State Department to support a president's effort to help build some workable international rules of the road on these issues. Issues. Um, same is true in climate change. Same is true of the increasing significance of economic issues and traditional national security policy. And then third, this is an area that you know far better than I do. I think both the State Department and an elected political leadership need to recognize there's a pretty big domestic disconnect in our society right now between people in Washington and the establishment again, in a sense, um, and lots of American citizens who, when we preach the virtues of disciplined American leadership, don't really need to be persuaded of the value of American engagement in the world, but they're skeptical about the discipline part because they've seen overreach, they've seen instances where you know, it seems like people are taking advantage of us too. So we all tell ourselves rightly. And the, the war, the wars have not yes. helped in that regard. No, it's a classic case of overreach that's come back to haunt us, like Iraq 2003, um, and that and makes people, as we saw after Vietnam, right? And that makes people suspicious. And so that was not invented by Donald Trump. You know, that's a disconnect which existed, and President Obama was quite eloquent about speaking to it. But we need, State Department, I think, needs to do a better job of not just recognizing that disconnect, but acting on it. We all tell ourselves rightly that smart foreign policy begins at home, you know, in a strong economic and political system, which is, of course, true. But it ends at home, too, you know, in better jobs and a healthier environment and more security. And we need to do a better job, as you were suggesting before, of helping Americans understand the practical value of, you know, smart diplomacy overseas, too. Not an easy task. Not an easy task. Well, but I, I suspect, and not just in your role as a president of the Carnegie Institute for International Peace, that you... Uh, Mr. Burns will be in the middle of those discussions for, for, for some years to come. So it's great to be with you. Thank Thanks you for so coming much, to David. the Institute of Politics. Oh, it's a pleasure. At the University of Chicago. Great to see you again. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, presented by Luminary Media and the University of Chicago Institute of Politics. The executive producer of the Axe Files is Matthew Jaffe. The show is also produced by Pete Jones, Zane Maxwell, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.